Let me squeeze in one more question, which seems goes to the heart of what I'm wrestling with. You say that what's distinctive about your product is that your players are not paid, and that was true 100 years ago. But in fact, they are paid. They get lower admission standards, they get tuition, room and board, and other things. That's a form of pay. So the distinction is not whether they're going to be paid, it's the form in which they're going to be paid and how much they're going to be paid. Isn't that right? It is not right. The principle, the NCAA for decades has defined pay to mean compensation in, ex of, in excess of two things. Number one, allowances for educational expenses, and educational can include both academic and athletic. That is the reasonable and necessary expenses to obtain an education. And number two, uh, certain sort of token prizes and awards for exceptional performance that are characteristic of amateur leagues. Uh, thank you, Mr. Waxman. Thank you, Justice Alito. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a reminder that all of my podcast material can be found at my website, which is bigamateurism.com. I've got the episodes there, a description, some show notes, and some resources on an episode-by-episode basis, so you can kind of take a look at some of the stuff I discuss and check it out for yourselves. I also have been writing in a blog for over two years now, and the name of that blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G. E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. My podcast can be found on all the major third-party directories, Google, Stitcher, Apple, TuneIn, Spotify, all of those places. All right, today we're going to dive into what I think is one of the most important structural elements of the big-time college sports marketplace, and that is the relationship, the actual relationship between the revenue-producing athletes who provide the value in the product and the institutions who purchase that labor and benefit from it. And this is one aspect of the business of big-time college sports, which has been the most propagandized and the most misunderstood because the NCAA and the Power Five have extraordinary incentive to convince decision makers and the general public that the relationship between the universities and the revenue-producing athletes is framed by the student-athlete concept, by the amateurism concept, by the collegiate model concept to take it completely outside of its true nature, which is a business relationship. So in that introductory clip, and I used that a couple of episodes ago, that was an exchange between Supreme Court Justice Alito and the NCAA's attorney, Seth Waxman. And Alito asked a really important question there. He said, wait a minute, aren't these guys already being paid? Isn't the athletic scholarship and the quid pro quo and this relationship between the universities and the revenue producing athletes, isn't the scholarship itself a form of compensation? Isn't it outright payment for the value of the athlete's services? And if that's the case, then we don't need to be talking about whether athletes should be compensated. And we can pretty much dispense with this amateurism discussion. We're then only talking about how much they should be paid and what the form of payment should be. And Seth Waxman, boy, he didn't want to answer that, but he had to be prepared for it. He should have known that that was coming, and I think he did know it was coming. And so he gave the NCAA one-size-fits-all answer to that question. And here's what he said. First of all, he categorically denied that the athletic scholarship was a form of payment and instead said, this is a quote, the NCAA for decades has defined pay to mean compensation in excess of two things. Number one, allowances for educational expenses and educational can include both academic and athletic. That is the reasonable and necessary expenses to obtain an education. And number two, certain sort of token prizes and awards for exceptional performance that are characteristic of amateur leagues. And then unfortunately, uh, Waxman was cut off by Chief Justice Roberts because Alito's questioning was up and it was time to go to Justice Sotomayor. But I really wish that Alito had had more 
time to pursue that line of questioning or that some other justice picked up on it, because that really gets to the very heart of the conflict that's always existed in big-time college sports between this professionalized model, this highly professionalized model, and the NCAA's insistence on the myth of amateurism to justify not paying the laborers in the workforce. So Alito kind of got at it, but Waxman really wasn't called to the carpet. But that statement by Waxman is interesting as is Judge Wilkins' description of the market. I talked in a prior episode about the importance of the market definition in these antitrust cases. And I want to talk about Waxman's response and Judge Wilkins' definition of the market kind of simultaneously to demonstrate how flexible this notion of pay versus no pay, amateurism as kind of a sliding scale, and it really doesn't have a fixed definition. And when you look at what Waxman said in response to Alito's suggestion that athletes are already paid through the athletic scholarship, What he was saying is that, well, athletes can receive different types of quote unquote benefits. He doesn't, Waxman doesn't want to use the word compensation. That's a bad word for him. But it's clear in his answer that there isn't this bright line fixed cost above which the NCAA can't go and still be within the contours of amateurism. He's saying that it's more flexible than that. And that was clearly what the evidence in Austin demonstrated and that there were all these categories of payments above above the scholarship limit, above the full cost of attendance scholarship limit, that the NCAA had paid routinely. And the NCAA claimed that still was uh, within their flexible construction of amateurism. And the athletes were saying, wait a minute, no, what this proves is that additional compensation above this full cost of attendance scholarship doesn't kill the market. And so that was kind of the fundamental evidentiary issue. But the way that the NCAA has categorized the compensation or the benefits, I'll use compensation. I know Waxman doesn't want to use it, but it is compensation. Their framework for compensation is very flexible, and it includes both education-related benefits and benefits that are clearly tied to athletic performance, but they're modest, and Waxman's right about that. But it doesn't change the fact that you don't have this bright-line definition of amateurism, and that's inherent in how Judge Wilkin defined the very market. She defined it as this bundle of goods and services that the universities offer and that the athletes essentially purchase. And that's under this monopsony theory where you only have a single buyer. So you have the athletes selling their services. You have this package of benefits that the universities offer. And it's really kind of a broad umbrella of compensation items or benefits. And it's not this fixed transaction that is limited exclusively by the full cost of attendance scholarship. And the reason that's so important is that the way the NCAA has framed its ever-evolving and changing definition of amateurism makes it very difficult for them to defend it in a full-blown litigation setting where the athletes are picking it apart item by item and witness by witness. And that's really what happened in Austin. So what the NCAA wants, and this gets back to the Iron Throne concept, the NCAA really doesn't care about the actual nature of the compensation. They just want to be in control of it. And I said that in the very first episode, that is the entire purpose of their Iron Throne campaign to eliminate external regulators because the NCAA doesn't want a federal court coming in and to do what Judge Wilkin did. And they sure as heck don't want an appellate judge like Justice Alito asking the very questions that he's asking. What they want is to completely eliminate that group of external regulators from the regulatory field so that they can do whatever the heck they want. They can be as hypocritical and inconsistent as they want, and they can define amateurism however they want. So I said in the very first episode that this Iron Throne campaign has very little to do with whether or how much athletes get paid, but who gets to decide. And I think that was inherent in the way that Waxman rolled up his response to Alito's question and also in how Judge Wilkin has defined the market. And this framing of the issue, the way that the NCAA's framed it, is specifically designed to avoid the portrayal of the relationship between the athletes and the universities as that of employer and employee. Because if you concede or you conclude, as Justice Alito seemed to, that the real relationship here was an employment relationship and that the scholarship is actually compensation, that opens the door wide open to questions that go directly to the fairness of the compensation agreement between the athletes 
athletes and the university. That exchange between Alito and Waxman really begs the central question that the NCAA simply doesn't want anyone to analyze. And that is, what is the fundamental relationship between the revenue-producing athletes and the universities? What is the history of that relationship? How has it changed? And how should we view it now in the 21st century, given the evolution of the product and the undeniable fact that the Power Five are providing a product that is a professional product in, in football and men's basketball, and that the relationship should be viewed through that lens. So what I'm going to do in this episode is to lay the foundation for how we should analyze the relationship between the athletes and the universities. And that requires us to really go back to the early iterations of big-time college sports, and that means big-time football, back into the early 20th century and then into the 1920s. And I'm going to use a series of milestones between the 1920s and through to the present to help us understand exactly what that relationship has been, how it has evolved, what purposes it has served along the way, and how the NCAA is pitching it in in its defense of these antitrust suits. And that brings us right up to the Austin Supreme Court argument. This is going to take several episodes, and they're going to be important episodes because this really is the central inquiry in this whole athletes' rights movement and the discussion in federal courts, in Congress, in state legislatures, and behind closed doors with all of the powerful interests that are hell-bent on preserving the status quo. So what I'm going to do is kind of lay out the milestones, and then I'm going to deal with one of them in this episode and close that out, and then we'll go to the next one. So I'm going to start in the 1920s, as I mentioned, and I'm going to use the 1929 Carnegie Report as the template for talking about how the relationships between athletes and universities were defined in this era between 1906, which is when the NCAA was founded, and then the post-World War II era, when the NCAA developed meaningful enforcement jurisdiction and authority. And it was during that time where there was really a Wild West market in the competition for the athlete services. And it's an interesting time because there were all kinds of benefits that were being offered that are completely outside of our current understanding of the benefits packages between the athletes and the universities. And you had all different kinds of forms of payment and relationships that explicitly included employment relationships, direct employment relationships. And looking at the array of inducements that universities used to get talented athletes, you really start to see how the free market actually might operate without all these draconian compensation limits that came into play really in the 1950s. So the Carnegie Report is a really important foundational document in this Wild West period. Then I'm going to go into this post-World War II era, 1945 to 1956, which, as I said in the first episode, was really one of the most important eras in the history of big-time college sports. And it was another perfect storm era where a lot of things happened, some of them fortuitous, that resulted really in the modern version of the NCAA and the basic relationship between the NCAA, the universities, and then big-time football and ultimately big-time basketball. But those were the uh, Walter Byers years, the early years. He started in 51. And then you had this debate about workers' compensation and there was workers' compensation suits and you know you had the, the invention of the student-athlete. And then along the same timeline and in a related context, you had universities dispensing with scholarships based on need or academic merit and going exclusively with a full athletic scholarship. And that is kind of the price-fixing era, as I see it, where the NCAA and the universities came together to put a single benefits package together, a uniform package that was defined by the athletic scholarship. And that became the price-fixing agreement. And the NCAA, as the now credible regulatory authority, the national regulatory authority, imposed that limit through its enforcement jurisdiction at the national level. So it was acting as a monopoly. And during the oral argument on March 31st, that's what the justices were talking about when they talked about this combination of price fixing and absolute market control. And those two things together are really 
bad news under antitrust law. And then the post-1956 period, after this universal agreement on the price of the athlete's labor, there were a series of milestones that tried to reconcile the increasing tension as the market exploded and we're into the television era. And then we're into all of these iterations of big time football alliances that have defined the market and were moving era to era and big contract to big contract. And the industry had a very difficult time defending the compensation limits within this multi-billion dollar market. And we're going to talk then after the 1956 era, I'm going to go straight to the Miles Brand era in the 2003-2004 and the invention of the collegiate model as a way to justify and reconcile these two irreconcilable forces, and that is the demand for the most professionalized football and men's basketball product in the marketplace, and then this insistence on amateurism and the athletic scholarship as an education exchange, as a basically an educational benefit, not as a benefit for the value of the athlete's athletic talent and labor. And that hypocrisy and the way that Miles Brand tried to resolve it is really a good insight into how the NCAA has basically been gaslighting not only the public, but federal courts and Congress and state legislatures. And then after that, after the Miles Brand collegiate model milestone, we're going to move into the beginning of these antitrust cases cases in 2006. And I'm going to talk about how the NCAA has tried to maintain this adherence to the education-related nature of the athletic scholarship and try to justify that as a market practice. And that's going to bring us into the present on the antitrust track. And part of that is going to be a different look at the O'Bannon decisions, both at the district court level and at the Ninth Circuit. And it's something I probably should have talked about earlier when I was talking about O'Bannon's relevance in the Austin case. But when the district court, Judge Wilkin, and then the Ninth Circuit looked at the cost of attendance increase, the the use of the cost of attendance scholarship as a remedy for name, image, and likeness compensation, it was put in an interesting place because that, by its very definition, the way that the court denominated that remedy, it was compensation for a a anti-competitive nil cap name, image, and likeness cap. It was not explicitly deemed an education-related benefit. So you had these remedies that came out of O'Bannon. You know, you had the trust fund and then you had the full cost of attendance scholarship. The trust fund got struck down by the Ninth Circuit. They kept the full cost of attendance scholarship, but it created an interesting tension within the existing athletic scholarship, at least as it's defined by the NCAA, because all of a sudden you had this component of the athletic scholarship that was actually a form of payment for the value of the athlete's name, image, and likeness rights that the NCAA had been illegally exploiting. So how do you reconcile that? Well, the best way to reconcile that, I think, would be to simply call the entire athletic scholarship compensation, which it really is. The Ninth Circuit took a different tack, and they tried to create this, and this maybe explains this education versus non-education-related benefit. They stuck this obviously non-education-related compensation package into the athletic scholarship. And it really didn't fit if you're going to insist on the fiction that the rest of that athletic scholarship is not compensation for the value of the athlete's services and their athletic performance and labor. So you had this bizarre uh, mixing of those two types of benefit. And on the backside of that, you had this ridiculous education versus non-education related distinction in which the Ninth Circuit had to pull amateurism out of the rule of reason analysis, use it as a freestanding value to justify limiting the compensation to essentially the athletic scholarship. So it it was a really interesting way that the, the Ninth Circuit handled that, but I think it shines a bright light on the absurdity of trying to couch the athletic scholarship as something other than a direct payment for the value of the athlete's services, performance, and labor. And then in that same time frame, there's another really 
really important event that I want to talk about, and that is the 2014 labor relations analysis of the relationship between athletes and big-time sports programs. And that was in this Northwestern case where a group of Northwestern football players uh, launched a petition to form a union. And they went to the Regional Labor Relations Board, and it's a federal body. It's an independent body, and they go through a, a very sterile analysis to determine whether the claimants are entitled to form a union under federal labor law. And the primary threshold there is that the athletes had to prove that they were employees. That was the fundamental analysis of the Regional Labor Relations Board. And so the Northwestern football players went in and they presented evidence. It's a Even though it's an administrative proceeding, it is conducted like a full adversary case, a, a lawsuit in any other setting in our court system. So both sides present evidence, both sides pr- have the opportunity to cross-examine witnesses, and you had a full-blown trial. And in that process, in that analysis, the Labor Relations Board applied a very well-settled set of criteria, fact-based criteria, to determine whether or not what these athletes actually did, not how they were characterized, not how they were classified, not how the NCAA described them, but what they actually did. And the Regional Labor Relations Board concluded quite easily, I think, that these guys, in terms of what they did, they were indeed employees. And that's an analysis that the NCAA is scared to death of. Now, technically, the NCAA wasn't a party to this suit. It was a suit between the football players and Northwestern University as their employer. But the NCAA was right there at the strategy level. They filed a front of the court brief, which I'm going to get into, and they were very active in that case. And that is a really important milestone because it forced the system to look in a realistic, fact-driven way at the true relationship. And the true relationship cannot be honestly defined as anything but but an employment relationship. And one of the reasons in these federal laws that the NCAA wants that they've been selling to Congress, the reason they want a provision that prohibits athletes from being deemed employees isn't only because they don't want to incur the additional burdens of an employer-employee relationship, but they don't want a group of athletes like these Northwestern football players trying to form a union because that is their worst nightmare. Because then there is some equality in bargaining power, at least bargaining rights, and the athletes could come to their university and say, we want a collective bargaining agreement. We're going to sit down and we're going to negotiate it. The NCAA doesn't want that. They want to be the sole authority to impose their will on the system, on the market, and on the revenue-producing athletes who make all the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries filthy, filthy rich. And that resistance to looking in a realistic, provable way at the true relationship is consistent with this tactic that the NCAA has used for decades and has really doubled down on in the perfect storm, starting with these antitrust cases. And that is that they don't want anybody looking too carefully or too closely at the facts that underpin the true relationship among all of the moving parts in the business of big-time college sports. Because when you do that, it really turns some of these myths, these propagandized myths that the NCAA has been so effective at insinuating into the public consciousness. It turns them on their head. And this student-athlete myth is chief among them. And that's why when we get to kind of a month-by-month, decision-by-decision breakdown of the perfect storm era, you really see how the NCAA has been in a battle for hearts, not minds, in their campaigns in federal courts, in Congress, particularly the Senate, in state legislatures, and in the arena of public opinion. Because they want the court, and this was on display in full force in the Austin case and the oral argument, they want the courts and the legislatures and the public to think about the relationship between the athletes and the system in terms of the the heart component, the emotional component, the wistful chariots of fire, Norman Rockwell version of the student athlete and the propagandized view of the scholar athlete and all of this stuff. They don't want it framed in terms of a true market analysis, the true facts of the relationship. And they have been very, very effective in their 
public relations campaigns and in presenting their cause and their case, both in Congress and in federal courts, in a way that draws those decision makers into the heart and out of the mind. They don't want questions like they got from Justice Alito. They don't want judges like Claudia Wilkin just kind of dismissing those emotional appeals and going to the heart of the true nature of the business and the relationship between the athletes and the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. So this is part of a broader strategy that really hasn't fully played out. We're not going to know how it plays out until we get the decision in Austin, and then we see how the NCAA and Power Five respond to that, whether it's a lawsuit in Florida under the Dormant Commerce Clause or whether they go back to the Senate and try to pull the heartstrings and stay out of the intellectual analysis of their business model. But that's just an overall tactic that the NCAA has used. And it was effective. I mean, that's where Justice Breyer was coming from, quite frankly. And I think that's where Justice Barrett may have been coming from. And I heard a little bit of that from Justice Sotomayor. So it's going to be real interesting to see how they characterize however they rule and uh, how they frame the context for their thinking and their decision making. But I'm pretty sure you're going to hear some of this heart stuff. And it's not going to just come from the minds. It's going to come from the hearts. And when you're on that territory in this dysfunctional, dishonest business model, the NCAA wins. Okay, so for the remainder of this episode, I'm going to talk about the Carnegie Report, and we're going to knock that out, and then we'll move on in the next episode to this 1945 to 1956 period and break that down in detail. All right, so let's get into the Carnegie Report. And I discussed the Carnegie Report in episode two, kind of at a broad brush level. And I'm going to just give a mini summary here. And then I'm going to get into the substance of one of the sections in the report that was really important. And it was one of the longest sections in the report, and one that really defines kind of what the market was between 1906 and 1929 in the talent acquisition market and how those relationships evolved and how the universities approached their relationship with recruited athletes. So the Carnegie Report on American College Athletics was the work product of the Carnegie Institute for the Advancement of Teaching, and it was published in 1929, and its principal author was a guy named Howard Savage. It was influenced by the former chair of the Carnegie Foundation, Henry Pritchett, who had been the president of MIT. And then there was some kind of outside influence from a really famous education theorist and commentator in the early 20th century, Abraham Flexner, who wrote the 1910 Flexner Report that fundamentally changed American medical education. But these guys, as I've discussed in prior episodes, were education elitists. And they had some very highbrow views and Flexner had some views that were really way outside the mainstream. But part of what the Carnegie Foundation was doing in the early 20th century was trying to figure out what American education ought to look like. And they, in the context of higher education, with the increase in the popularity of football, and you had universities building these massive stadiums, and it was just a wave of support for big-time college football. And it became kind of a national craze. And there was discussion within the Carnegie Foundation about the potential impact of of that on the integrity of the academic integrity of higher education generally. And there had been discussion about putting together a report on the impact of big time college sports. Really what that meant was big time college football. And as I mentioned in episode two, you really have to look at the value system and the time in which this report was drafted because it became really a condemnation of big time football. And a couple of academicians, both in sports history and in higher education, history that have written a lot on these issues, including, you know, an, an analysis of the Carnegie Report. And those include Ronald Smith, who is a professor at Penn State, and then John Thielen, who's a professor at Kentucky. Both acknowledged that the Carnegie Report was really designed to be an indictment of big-time college football. And Smith unearthed some communications that predated the report that suggested a clear bias against big-time football and that the outcome the final conclusion of the report was preordained. And I think that, that that makes sense. And in my reading of the Carnegie Report, that comes through in some pretty clear ways. Once you read through it and kind of get beyond the sterile presentation of some of these issues, you start to see that the framing of the 
the issues really was hostile in many ways to the very existence of big time college football in higher education in America. And the other thing about the time frame is that this was a period of really obvious, undeniable racism, sexism, classism, elitism. And that ran through the Carnegie Foundation. Those were very powerful dynamics at the time. I think I mentioned this in episode two, but Abraham Flexner, again, who was not directly involved in this work with Savage and Pritchett, but he was floating around and he was friends with Pritchett. He was friends with Savage. And after the Carnegie report was released, Flexner had written in another context about his disdain for big time college sports. And Flexner was a healthcare segregationist. And I'll just note, even though he wrote this foundational report on medical education, he was neither a physician nor a scientist, but he had some some strange beliefs that were not outside the mainstream in the 1920s or the early 20th century. And he thought that African-American patients should be treated by African-American doctors and white patients by white doctors. And that reflected a segregated system that existed across the country where healthcare was segregated and delivered sometimes by hospitals. So blacks and whites couldn't go to the same hospital. And in the places that did allow them to go to the same hospital, they were segregated by ward or by floor. And that was just openly accepted. So some of the thinking that some of the values that went into this Carnegie report. Remember, it is a values-based report. It is drawing a values-based analysis and conclusion to shape the future of higher education in America. But those values were really suspect. And the people who used those values to put together this analysis that fundamentally altered the narrative on big-time college sports in America, and and people today call back to the Carnegie Report with a sense of wistfulness and historical permanence and value, and they treat it like liturgy. Uh, But nobody's talking about the value system that it came from, and it was not a very good value system, and I don't know how you can defend the use of the thinking from the Carnegie Report in the 21st century business model of big-time college sports. And I just want to remind you that in the work of the Knight Commission, starting in 1991, the commission really channeled the Carnegie Report and its thinking on the fact that there was a big problem problem in big-time college sports, and that the solution was presidential leadership. And then that's been pulled through with this reverence. And in 2020, in September of 2020, Lamar Alexander, a senior senator from Tennessee, who was chair of the Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee that heard evidence on athlete compensation. And Alexander went old school, and he invoked the Knight Commission, and he worked on the Knight Commission. And he explicitly pulled forward the Carnegie Report, and this is in 2020. So the Carnegie Report has achieved this status as liturgy, but when you really look at its history and you look at its value system, it's very difficult to defend. But uh, it is very quotable. The Carnegie Report is very quotable. And there are portions of it that I think are worth looking at just from a data gathering standpoint and categorizing the ways that the universities conducted the business of big-time college sports and define their relationship with the athletes. And so uh, what I'm going to do is use a section from the report. And remember, Savage went out and he conducted, I think this was like a two and a half year field study. And he went to colleges and universities all over the United States. He went to a few in Canada, but they covered the broad mosaic of higher education at the time and included big state schools and small private schools. And what he was trying to do was create an objective portrayal of the landscape of big-time college sports and then make some recommendations. But again, underlying this was a fundamental hostility to the very existence of big-time college sports. But chapter 10 is titled, The Recruiting and Subsidizing of athletes. And it talks about the various ways that universities and colleges went about identifying talent and then inducing talent 
to attend their school. And again, it's important to remember that at this time, the NCAA had absolutely zero enforcement authority or jurisdiction. So there was no organization that could enforce rules of amateurism, which existed. You know, in 1906, the NCAA put together an initial declaration on amateurism, and then they refined that in 1916 and again in 1922. And the 16 and 22 versions look a lot like what's contained now in constitutional provision 2.9, which is the principle of amateurism. But they had no teeth back in the 1920s and didn't until the 1950s, really. And that's because there was no way for the NCAA to impose its will on the members. And a lot of those decisions, the principles that governed college athletics then, were conducted through what's called home rule, which meant that that was done at the conference and the institutional level. But as I've discussed in other posts and as I've characterized, most of these amateurs and principals were honored mostly in their breach. And in this section 10 that Savage discusses, the recruiting and subsidizing of athletes, he explores all the ways that the principle of amateurism was being violated. That's really what this discussion is about. And he lays it out. And then in a summary, he offers some recommendations. I'm going to talk about those towards the end of the episode. But the way he frames the analysis, he distinguishes between recruiting and subsidizing. And he calls recruiting the solicitation of school athletes with a view to inducing them to to attend a college or university. And then by subsidizing, what he means is the provision of financial or other assistance to athletes in consideration of their services on school or college teams or squads. And so basically what he's talking about is talent acquisition. And that is a fundamental component of the business model today. And one of the overarching themes that has evolved from the very beginning of American college sports and expressed itself quite clearly in the perfect storm is that the battle to preserve or avoid losing a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market is perhaps the most powerful force that drives the interests within the market. And that came through loud and clear with the hair on fire calls for immediate congressional action in 2020 through the Senate and giving the NCAA and Power Five these draconian federal protections and immunities to preserve the status quo because in the existing status quo, all of the market participants have worked out all of their post-board of regent market interests, including, importantly, the competitive environment. And everybody has their competitive advantage, disadvantage thing worked out, at least the powerful interests do, the Power Five do, and the NCAA does. And they don't want anything coming in that's going to disrupt that. And that is such a powerful force. And this really drives a lot of what Savage describes in his chapter 10. So the other thing that's important to understand as Savage is describing this is that there's an underlying assumption that amateurism is good and that it is an adequate antidote for corruption and scandal and cheating, and it will preserve the integrity of the academy. And all that would be very easily attainable if universities at the university level would simply buy into a sincere effort to adhere to the principles of amateurism. In fact, I'm just going to read a passage from Savage's report that illustrates that. So he says, Organizations with wider membership, like, for instance, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, have adopted amateur definitions which have proved ineffectual to curtail or check serious abuses. If the individual colleges and universities that hold membership in the NCAA had sincerely accepted its definition of an amateur, as quoted on previous pages, and had conscientiously, or even to a reasonable extent, followed it, the abuses of recruiting, proselytizing, and subsidizing would have disappeared appeared overnight. That they have not abated more casts less discredit upon the NCAA than upon the individual institutions that are its members. So that is really the overarching belief that Savage brings into his analysis of all of the ways that universities manage the talent acquisition market are in conflict with the amateur ideal. So I'm just going to go through the list of tactics that Savage identifies both in the quote-unquote recruiting phase and then the subsidizing 
phase. But, you know, Savage sets the discussion through a lens that brings in some interesting philosophies and assumptions. And one of them I just want to address before I get into the laundry list that he identifies, because it really is important. And it also dovetails with a theme that I have developed in this podcast and in my writing, that in many ways over the history of big time college sports, the athletes themselves have been portrayed in a way that delegitimizes them as regular students, that delegitimizes them as legitimate members of the academic community. And that has the effect of delegitimizing their role in this big time college sports marketplace that has evolved. And that in turn essentially diminishes their value to the system. And that expresses itself in so many ways, but it expresses itself in an interesting way in the way that Savage describes the athletes. And I found it interesting that he even chose to frame the issue this way by talking about the nature of the athlete who is typically in this pool of athletes that wind up being a participant in the recruiting and subsidizing process. And it's at the very beginning of his analysis, and it's under Section C titled The Impecunious Athlete. And I had to look that one up. That means poor. That means needy. And Savage says, and and it's also important to, as I read this, to think about how it sounds. What do you hear? Like when I first read this, I didn't hear the pejorative nature of it. But understanding the history of the Carnegie Report, understanding the motivations of the people who wrote it, and then actually looking at this language in that context, this is a delegitimization tactic. And it is consistent with the narrative that Savage and Pritchett and Flexner wanted to portray that the very existence of big time college sports was inconsistent consistent with the values of a legitimate higher education environment in America and was a threat to the academic and intellectual integrity of higher education. So under this section, Savage says, in the United States, the saying is common that every athlete is a needy athlete, that football players and to some extent other athletes come from families whose means do not permit them to pay all of the expenses of a college course is generally accepted as fact and indeed is broadly true. He goes on to say that the well-to-do athlete becomes something of a rarity. And then Savage says the presence of the impecunious athlete in American schools, his desire to secure the advantages of a college education, and his ability or unwillingness to distinguish between proper and improper assistance have combined to produce a fertile field in which to sow the tares of commercialized exploitation and subsidies. Now, I don't know what you hear when I read that passage or those passages. What I hear what I see, what I interpret is Savage saying these guys don't belong and that they wouldn't be here but for their value as an athlete and that the means by which they find themselves at certain universities makes a mockery of higher education's primarily intellectual mission. And this last paragraph, I think, is kind of the tell on that. They talk about the uh, athlete, the impecunious athlete's inability or unwillingness to distinguish between proper and improper assistance. That's an interesting statement because they're basically blaming the athlete and saying that the athlete is imposing these corrupting influences on the system, which is not true at all because then Savage goes on to uh, portray the institutions themselves as being responsible for these corruptions. And it happens on campus. It's not the boosters. It's not the alumni. It's not the benefactors outside of the university. It's the people in the university buildings on campus and the decision makers who really are largely responsible for this evolution into recruiting high-level, high-asset football players. But the, the fact that Savage included this section really says to me that he wants to frame the issue in a way that has people believing that because the transactions are illegitimate and the purpose of the transactions are illegitimate, then the athletes who benefit from those transactions are illegitimate. And that narrative has been pulled forward from the Carnegie Report, and it is alive and well in the 21st century and has expressed itself through the delegitimization of revenue-producing athletes through all of these theories that pit the interests of 
affluent white non-revenue producing athletes who are presumptively good in the big time college sports model. And then against the interests of revenue producing athletes who pay for all of those non-revenue sports who are overwhelmingly African-American. And that's an important overlay on this his hostility to revenue producing athletes. And that is that in the 1920s, you're talking about white jocks, dumb jocks. That was kind of the narrative. Well, in the 21st century, that's a much different look because you're not talking about uh, white kids, the unwashed white kids who have no business being on the same campus or breathing the same air as elite white students. You're talking about African-American laborers who are being brought in, being delegitimized in a system that demands that the product of their labor be spent on rich white beneficiaries. And I mean, that is just a horrible, horrible framing of the interests in big time college sports. And that's exactly what Miles Brand did in his formulation of the collegiate model. It's what Savage was talking about with the impecunious, needy, poor athlete. And it's what the big time power five interests did during the name, image, and likeness debate with this displacement theory that pit directly and clearly pitted the interests of black revenue producing athletes against the quote unquote Olympic athletes, the white athletes. And we, we simply can't lose sight of that in looking at how the relationship between the athlete, the football and basketball playing athlete, and the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries has evolved. All right, so let's go through this list that Savage identifies as um, relating to the recruitment of the athletes. And he talks about the kinds of recruiting and the distribution of recruiting across the schools that he looked at. And there were some places where there was not much evidence of recruiting. But in the schools that did recruit, they used several common tactics. And one was to recruit by correspondence. And that correspondence was either initiated by the athlete or by the university. And it was a way, that tactic was a way to connect the talent with the buyer of the talent, essentially. And that's no different today. That happens. And then there were circulars and advertisements in recruiting that were a little more formal, a little more sophisticated, where the universities are essentially selling their product to the athletes. And that starts to take on a little more of a commercial component. And then there was the recruiting of athletes through personal solicitation. And there were several types of university representatives that might do that. But Savage also talks about uh, the coaches doing that. And so when you look at the correspondence, the advertising, and then the in-person solicitation by athletic department personnel, you basically have the same model that you have today. And what uh, Savage tried to do was distinguish between those practices that might be consistent with the rational conceptualization of amateurism and those that weren't. And through all of his analysis and looking at all of these things on the recruiting and the subsidy side, he's looking at either side of this fuzzy line of honor, principle, and integrity that is rooted in the amateur principle. And some of these correspondence, for example, where you know a kid may write a school and say, I understand you may be in the market for a center on the football team and just wanted to let you know that I'm out there. And that athlete might get a response from a school that said, wait a minute, we don't recruit. We're not interested in your athletic ability. If you are a, a good student and you otherwise qualify and you can get in on your own merit and you happen to be a good athlete, then you can play on our football team. That's the honorable approach. And then Savage uses some interesting examples of letters. And he had actual letters in this field study. He got correspondence and he got documents and he describes some of the letters that went in a different direction where an athlete writes the university and then somebody from the athletics department or from the university general administration writes back and in very cleverly disguised language makes it clear that they want the kid, but they're not going to say that it is explicitly for their athletic ability, but they make it very clear that they 
will do whatever they can to get that athlete into the school. And it was in that context that Savage really started to shift some of the blame for these dishonest, disingenuous tactics to the university itself. And he talks about the influence of alumni. He talks about the influence of boosters and benefactors and all these external actors in the sports marketplace that now are deemed bad actors by the NCAA and Power Five. And I'll talk about that a little bit more towards the end of the episode. But he is really pointing the finger at the universities and this disingenuous, dishonest, hypocritical, two-faced approach that they had to trying to preserve for outward appearances their amateur virtue. But behind the scenes, they are aggressively and clearly pursuing a professional product and they want to get the best talent that they can possibly get. And that goes back to the, why do they do that? Because they want power. They want prestige. They want social currency. They want people to believe that they have a superior product in the marketplace. And they want money and more money. And one of the most direct ways to get that, and this is contained in the Carnegie Report in another section, maybe it was Henry Pritchett's preface, but he says outright that that's the reason that schools are in the big time marketplace. They want all of the benefits and the easy access to power, publicity, prestige, social currency, which leads to money, because that's what universities crave. And that's why from the very beginning, as Savage teases out, you have this insidious, invisible impulse at the institutional level to use any means possible to enhance the reputation and value of your brand. And that goes back to the early 20th century. And in Savage's view, the touchstone analysis there in determining which side of that line a practice fell. You look at whether that practice would be applied equally to a non-athlete. So you get this regular student versus non-regular student comparison that has evolved into an interesting component of the NCAA's justification for its business model today. And they talk about athletes student athletes having to be quote-unquote regular students and the reason they do that is because the more they can convince the public that that is true even though that's uh, the exact opposite of the relationship that they have with the athletes then they can portray the athlete as a non-commercial product as a true student and the extent to which NCAA rules or practices require college athletes, revenue producing athletes to be treated as regular students is a way to really kind of push them onto the once to the side of the line that has them under the amateurism model and not the professional model. And it's just a fraud. It's just ridiculous. That wasn't true in the 1920s because there were still schools who were legitimately saying we're not in that business. So Savage's task was really to try to look at the practices and see which side of that line they were on. Were they are these guys being treated as regular students or were they being treated specially? Were they be being given special consideration? And in the amateurism model that existed in the early 20th century and in the value system of the Carnegie Foundation and the Institute for the Advancement of Teaching, that kind of inducement, that kind of recruiting tactic or that kind of subsidy was an affront to amateurism and the intellectual integrity of higher education. So now I'm going to move to what Savage characterizes as the subsidizing of athletes. I would call this really inducement. That's kind of how we understand it today. What is the actual tangible thing that the athlete gets in exchange for their seat in a classroom and their presence at the university and, I believe, for their athletic ability? And so here are the things that existed. When I list these out, it's important to remember that the athletic scholarship, this direct quid pro quo where the university says, we're going to give you tuition and whatever else in exchange for your athletic services is only one small component of this broad array of tangible things that universities gave to athletes before the NCAA had any regulatory authority, before there was this agreement on one 
one fixed price for the cost of labor that happened in the 1950s. But before that, you have all of these tools and it really reflects kind of a Wild West market in the talent acquisition game and the game to gain a competitive advantage or avoid losing one. So in section C under subsidies, Savage has the title, The Practice of Subsidizing. And he has six different methods that are used. The first is jobs and employment, an explicit employer-employee relationship where the university finds some kind of employment for the athlete that is designed to help them pay their way through school. So in lieu of a, a true athletic scholarship, a lot of these arrangements involved employment. And then again, in Savage's, which side of the line is, is this on? He looks at the various factors that go to a legitimate relationship where where the athlete is doing something of value, is getting paid you know, fair market value for the services, and it has primarily an academic orientation to pay tuition and not compensation for the athlete's services. And then on the other side of that line were these sham jobs where the athlete did a nominal job and maybe wasn't very good at it and, and maybe got a payment that was out of proportion to the work or what it would be in a free market. And that would be really an underboard kind of underhanded form of compensation for athletic services. So he looks at that, but as a form of inducement, the employment relationship was explicit in the 1920s or the early 20th century. And there was none of this, well, athletes can't be employees. And we'll get to that when we talk about the invention of the student athlete in the 1950s. Then number two on that list are loans as subsidies. So a lot of universities were giving out loans. And again, which side of the line are they on? And can all students get these or can only athletes get these? And then the question is, well, was it a legitimate arm's length transaction, or at least as arm's length as can be in that context? And in some of these loans, there was no expectation that they'd be paid back. It was a sham loan. And that obviously then constituted a form of compensation or payment. And then on the other hand, you had legitimate third parties involved, banks and other institutions that had a legal requirement or a market incentive to make sure that the loan was repaid. Then you had the third category, you had scholarships. And again, there were were a broad array of types of scholarships that were being offered to recruited athletes. And they included the athletic scholarship, but the athletic scholarship was just one component that obviously was on the wrong side of that line in Savage's view. But there were some other scholarships that were really defined as primarily education-related scholarships. And there was one that was kind of in the model of the Rhodes Scholarship. You know, when Cecil Rhodes in the early 20th century, when he died in his will, he created the Rhodes Scholarship. And athletic participation and ability is a criterion, one criterion. But the primary criterion was scholastic achievement. And then there were some intangible criteria that really went to how good of a citizen you were and how empathic you were and all those things. But And that was a graduate scholarship. So that was for post-college work. A lot of universities used that model and it was attractive because it did incorporate some athletic criteria and that allowed the universities to kind of mask the real purpose for bringing the athlete in. So Savage looks at that. And again, on which side of the line it falls depends on really how the credentials of the candidate and the recipient match up with the stated purpose of the scholarship. But that was one way that they brought in through the back door and through these athletic criteria recruited athletes. And that was a form of compensation. And then there were also endowed scholarships by alumni or outside benefactors. And and that is a a common practice today. And it's explicitly for an athletics scholarship. And a lot of big time football and basketball programs are essentially endowing their uh, athletics scholarship burdens. And, you know, if you get a critical mass or a full roster full of endowed scholarships, that, that takes a lot of money out of the expense side of the budget and in theory, frees it up for spending on other things. And my cynical view is that that money winds up going into the pockets of the rich so they can get richer. But at least in theory, that's what these endowed scholarships do. But you had the same thing happening in 
the 1920s. And then you had other types of scholarships that were disguised in one way or another. So then you had actual subsidies and money, actual cash payments. And when you look at how Savage describes that category of inducement, what he's describing sounds a lot like what is now the full cost of attendance scholarship, this calculation now under federal law that basically goes to providing some fund, some money to students to pay for the sundry incidental expenses of attending college. And there were uh, exchanges like that in the 1920s that were designed really to help students pay for these incidental costs that wouldn't be covered by any other category of academic expenses and wouldn't be covered by a scholarship. And that's very similar to laundry money that existed up until the 1970s. And then how the full cost of attendance scholarship and this kind of additional stipend between $2,000 and $5,000 under federal calculations were conceptualized. And again, Savage looks at those and says, well, which side of the line are they on? Are they really for legitimate incidental expenses? Or are they a form of compensation? And that brings us right to this O'Bannon decision where technically the full cost of attendance scholarship remedy was compensation for the anti-competitive effects of NCAA nil compensation laws and not education-related expenses. And so you have this same issue playing out in 20. 15 that was playing out in the early 20th century. Which side of the line are these cash payments on? And so we'll talk about that more when we talk about O'Bannon. And then there are also subsidies in kind, favor, or service. So you had this took uh, a, a number of forms, including payments from alumni services, including room and board, and those were also offered through fraternities. Then you had training tables, meals that were provided to athletes, and that was kind of an in-kind benefit. And then you had the maintenance of academic standing. So you had tutors and you had special assistants for athletes who were struggling. And then you also had complimentary game tickets. And I guess this was before the anti-scalping laws, but athletes were given tickets to games. And as the popularity of the sport grew and tickets were scarce, a player could make pretty good money selling his tickets in the open market and they were allowed to keep that money. So all those things were kind of in-kind benefits. Almost all of them would be a violation of NCAA rules today. And so the Carnegie Report looks at all of these items, all of the ways that the relationship between the athlete and the university takes shape. And on the back side of that, I think there, there's some important observations to sum up. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about how Savage summarizes this section on recruiting and subsidizing. And in the conclusion, some recommendations on how he thinks honor and integrity in the academy can be preserved and maintain. But basically what the analysis really demonstrates in my judgment is that motive is always important. And you have the motivations in all of these transactions falling on one side of the line or the other. And if the motive is purely educational, then it's okay. And if the motive is as a form of inducement that really is compensation, then it's not okay. That same model at the philosophical level exists today. And that's one of the reasons that the NCAA has propagandized the education side of that rather than the compensation side of that. And that goes right to that initial quote that I pulled out from, from the exchange between Justice Alito and Seth Waxman. Waxman was trying to make that ridiculous argument and making that argument in the 21st century is absurd on its face. You know, it had some merit in the early 20th century. So I don't think there's any question about what the motives are today. The other thing is, you know, I mentioned this earlier, this characterization of the athlete, the impecunious athlete. And then today you have these a uh, number of ways that the system stakeholder beneficiaries delegitimize the revenue producing athletes and that serves their purposes on multiple levels and we're going to talk more about that in separate episodes when I really get into the race issues and the ways that uh, the big time sports industry has delegitimized the labor force. And then, of course, and I think this may be the most important takeaway from Savage's work, is that the motivations 
that led the transactions to fall on the dark side of this line of integrity came from the institutions themselves, not from all these external, quote-unquote, bad actors. And I'm going to do an episode on bad actors and how the NCAA and Power Five use that framework to justify the bad actor conduct that's going on inside the Taj Mahal athletics facilities and these mid-six-figure salaries that a lot of these people are drawn in. But the Carnegie Report really didn't identify the alumni or the boosters or the benefactors or any of these people outside operating peripherally to the uh, institution itself as a problem to, uh, to a lesser extent, but not really the problem. And I think that is, uh, is really important. And then in the conclusion section, I think Savage kind of, you know, to the extent he was trying to be objective, he kind of shows his hand here. And in the section titled Summary, he says, The bearing of subsidizing upon the amateur status comes down at last to a question of motive. No matter what the source of the subsidy, if the reason behind it can be accurately determined, the status of the athlete becomes at once clear. Given a skilled fullback who is receiving from a head coach $100 a month, if it can be proven that the motive for this provision concerns not at all the ability or prominence of the athlete, then the athlete is not thereby professionalized, whatever the presumptions to the contrary. But in such a case, the mere assertion of innocence is not to be taken as proof. On the other hand, any favor, however small, that tends to assist an athlete financially, if it is done because he is an athlete, marks the beginning of professionalism. There is no valid reason why even the most worthy athlete should receive any consideration, favor, assistance, or attention that is not available upon the same terms and with the same readiness to the general body of undergraduates. Nor is it easy to see how the sincere amateur could expect such special consideration or advantage. And there you have it. And as we're going to discuss in the next episode, when we talk about the transition of the relationship between the athletes and the universities and institutions into an undeniable compensation for athletic services as expressed in the full athletic scholarship, we're going to see how the NCAA really is operating in bad faith when they try to pound that new relationship into the bright side, the good side of the line of integrity, the regular student side of the line of integrity that Savage was talking about in the 1920s. You just can't do that with any credibility. And then in his conclusion, Savage makes some interesting points. He says, The foregoing exposition attempts to penetrate the deepest shadow that darkens American college and school athletics. Probably portions of the picture are even blacker than they have been painted. The university or college that, under capable leadership, makes up its collective mind to cast out these practices can do so. What is needed is constancy of purpose and patience in the face of opposition from those whose self-interest, false pride, and mistaken loyalties make their recession difficult. Experience has shown of all who are involved in these evils, administrative officers, teachers, directors of athletics, coaches, alumni, undergraduate, and townsmen, the man who is the most likely to succeed in uprooting the evils of recruiting and subsidizing is the college president. It is his duty to coordinate opinion and direct the program of an institution. If neighboring presidents are like-minded, his task is a little lightened. But under no circumstance which we have been able to discover is it impossible even if he stands alone. It cannot be easy, but such are the position and the powers of the American college president that once having informed himself of the facts and being possessed of the requisite ability and courage, he will succeed. And there you have it. That's really the segue in Savage's mind, and really the contours of the overall report, to the final destination, and that is presidential control of intercollegiate athletics. And the buck stops with the president. And we've talked about that at length, and I talked about that in episode four when I talked about the structure of presidential control, the history of presidential control. And I traced it back to the Carnegie Report. I didn't use that exact quote, but this helps to reinforce where the Carnegie Report was headed and also shows the extent to which the president 
presidents have evolved in their thinking about the value of big-time college sports to a place where they're no longer a position of authority that can restore integrity to big-time college sports. They are active cheerleaders for the status quo because they're benefiting enormously from it. And we've talked about that as well. So, all right, so let's wrap up this episode. And then in the next episode, we're going to talk about this period from 1945 to 1956, which is a fascinating period because of the number of things that came together fortuitously to fundamentally shape the nature of the NCAA national office and the relationship between the athletes and the universities. So thank you so much for joining. I love having you along for the ride, and I hope you will be back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Thank you.